thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 145 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Dr. Kate Shanahan. Dr. Kate is not only a doctor, but the LA Lakers Pro Nutrition Program Director. In today's episode, we explore what is a human diet, food rules, sugar, vegetable oil, fat burning, and mitochondrial function. Let's welcome Dr. Kate to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on your show. Really excited to introduce you to the listeners. I'd love you to set the scene for us and just share a little bit about your story, um, training, and what you're up to these days. Yeah, so um, I'm a family medicine doctor, and I've been in practice for 20-something years, uh, but my background actually is biochemistry and molecular biology, as I was going to be a genetic engineer, <laughs> um, and then I, this was in the 1980s, and um, that uh, didn't seem like that would be like feasible, that we would actually be able to control biology the way we were thinking we would. So I bailed out of that and I went to medical school hoping to get to the bottom of problems like shin splints and uh, sports injuries because I was always having those. And that that's a big part of my background because actually um, I uh, spent a lot of time exercising. And then there was a point in time after completing medical school and realizing that I was never going to be able to get to the bottom of of really anything in medical school based on the training that we get in medical school alone. Cause yeah, you know, I, and I didn't really know there was anything else. Um, but, um, cause medical school really just teaches you how to codify and, uh, prescribe, uh, for, for conditions, but doesn't get to the underlying cause of anything. So, um, so after being in practice for a couple of years, I got really sick and I couldn't walk for a few years and I had, uh, did no explanation for it whatsoever and uh, tried everything, surgery and so on, and nothing helped. I had a knee problem. And um, it wasn't until my husband brought me a book called Spontaneous Healing by Andrew Weil, where I encountered a phrase that was something, you know, new and just like rekindled my original uh, love of biochemistry. Actually, it was the phrase was uh, essential fatty acids and just talking about omega-3 and omega-6, which we all have heard of now. But this was a long, long time ago, and um, I didn't know enough about them at all. I didn't know anything about them. And I had uh, was kind of upset that I didn't because I had gone through medical school relatively recently and they were, you know, discovered in the eighties and nineties and, um, should have heard about it. And so I, I went to, uh, actually flew to Oahu because there was no way to get a book out to the Island of Kauai and, um, got a couple of biochemistry books and just read them cover to cover all about the biochemistry of our bodies and realized that the science of nutrition was really given short shrift the way that we learn it in, um, in medical school and, and basically the way 
we still taught everywhere, you know, because mostly it's memorizing a few pathways and then we jump over to statistics and we completely don't apply it to the, the, the body itself. Like we just go from, um, abstract molecular, you know, structures to statistics and really the meat of nutrition science is connecting those two kind of, um, actually not statistics really don't play a role at all, but, but building on what we learn in biochemistry and applying that to physiology. And I did that over the course of the next couple of years by, um, by really, uh, by chance, actually, I had come across the work of Weston Price, and um, he was a brilliant scientist on the nutrition world in the early 20th century, made some great inroads, should have been the foundation of my medical education and, and everyone's everywhere who's interested in health, but it wasn't. And so that kind of gave me like a different perspective of what true, what true health really looks like and that it is our right. <laughs> you know, we are all potentially capable of it. Um, and, and, uh, it, and it has to do with our connection to the natural world and our ability to, draw nutrition from the natural world, which is something our ancestors really specialized in and we have completely forgotten about. Yeah, that's totally true. And certainly what would have been your experience with how little of that type of health training you get in a medical degree and obviously now what you spend most of your time educating your athletes on. Yeah. So when it comes to working with athletes, um, I, I just like working with my patients in clinic. I, I always, you have to meet them where they are. And so the, a lot of times they're, um, not really able to do everything that I would recommend. So I start with some simple things and we kind of go down, um, a little list of, you know, what can, what can you do? What are you ready for? And then I, based on that little short discussion, I, I, I start with something really simple for, um, for those folks who, who need that. Um, and then for the, my, a dream athlete is an athlete who has a personal chef. Cause then I just tell them, okay, uh, you all right with me talking to your personal chef and just having them do what I say. And, <laughs> and they check that box off. And then I just go right to the chef and say, you know, here's what we want to do and kind of give them, um, a crash course in what I call a human diet based on our book, deep nutrition, where we describe the four pillars of world cuisine, which are the four elements that are common to every single diet that people used to follow back when we were still specialized and very knowledgeable about extracting nutrition from our environments sustainably the way we used to. Yeah. Tell us more about your book. So it's titled Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food. And I'd love to hear more about the four pillars that you mentioned. So, yeah, so we, we broke it down because um, we had the idea that if there was something that everybody used to do in common, um, you know, just just trying to get to the answer, the simple question of what is it that is a healthy diet? What is a baseline you know, definition of a healthy diet? Because you'll hear all kinds of stuff, you know, and as a, as a doctor, my patients were anywhere from vegan to raw diets to just, uh, you know, all you know, frozen food or all takeout food and um and, uh, you know, we wanted to kind of get a sense of what the heck is really the optimal diet. And at the time I was doing this work, there were a couple, uh, popular diets like, um, 
uh, that were in the world of longevity science, they were talking about like the Okinawan diet and the French diet. They were kind of like battling it out, um, those two diets. And when I looked at in my husband and I, my husband's really into cooking, you know, he has a lot of cookbooks. So we were looking at the cookbooks and we were watching these travel shows and we were seeing the same things come up over and over again. And we figured that, you know, that probably was a clue that we should all be paying attention to these common elements. So the four that we found everywhere that um, constitute the entirety of most of these traditional diets, um, they weren't just like add on to the diet, like, okay, you eat whatever, and then you take this uh, supplement, basically. These are the full sum total of almost everything that they ate. And so the four pillars we found and described in the book, Deep Nutrition in much more detail, are fresh foods, that's number one. Then there's fermented and sprouted foods. And then there's, we call it meat on the bone, which is meat like with the skin, including the bones and the ligaments and stuff and organ meats like liver and um, bone marrow and so on. And um, those four elements are um, you, you, whether somebody's living in Alaska or Africa or or uh, dining in the best French restaurants, you're going to see these kinds, these foods come up over and over again. And each one has a very, uh, each one is good for our whole body, but also has like a very specific reason why it's so good for our body that we, we go over that in the book, Deep Nutrition. We help you understand how each one of those is going to help your overall health and your, maybe if you have a specific medical problem too, um, how it could help that as well. And of course, how to make it or how to find it. Yeah, great. That's awesome. So we'll definitely put more information on your book, Deep Nutrition, in the show notes. So I wanted to also hear about the type of athletes that you're working with these days and what sort of style of um, either recommendations you practice or what you're trying to achieve with these athletes? Yeah, so working with athletes, there's like um, uh, there's several different ways that I do it. And one is um, like uh, the best the best way is kind of with the backing of whatever team uh, they happen to be on, you know, with the backing of their trainer. So it can be a much more comprehensive approach where they're sort of immersed in it and they don't have to even know about it <laughs> because, well, you know, I mean, you know, athletes are focused on being athletes and um, especially like in the NBA um, where I've done most of where I've worked is where I, the kind of athletes I've worked with the most um, they're focused on their careers and they're really what they eat is often an afterthought. And um, you know, they, they kind of know it's important. They've heard a million times it's important, but um, it, you really, it's easier just to give it to them and, <laughs> and learn what they like and, make sure that they like it and then they'll love it. And that's, that's all there is to it. Um, but then there's the older athlete who, uh, is, um, maybe in their late twenties or something and, um, has become a little bit more, uh, 
aware of the connection between what they eat and, you know, how they feel uh, for one reason or another with learning, maybe just cognitively or um, un often, unfortunately, having experienced it themselves, you know, the bad way through an injury or starting to feel tired or something like that. Um, and then when that happens, then you can work more one on one and you can actually have much more of a um, a uh, real relationship kind of mentoring conversation about, you know, here's how you, f you can feed your body when you're not just dipping from the buffet that we, uh, of foods that we give you. And even within that, here's how you can make the best choices um, among the buffet of foods that we, we provide. Yeah. And so it's, it, a lot of it is, you know, conversations around just the respect for their, their choices, right? You can't just tell somebody here's, you know, what you're going to do and expect them to actually do it. <laughs> so you have to get buy-in and that's kind of the biggest part of it all. And then, and then beyond that, it's just, it's, we, we have the baseline of the four pillars and we give them healthy fats. We help them understand the role of uh, body fat as one of the most important fuels for their performance. And there are foods in the diet that can block your access to body fat. And we try to get them away from those as much as possible. Yeah, so I'd love you to talk more about those foods and what impact they have on the mitochondrial function. Right. So a lot of folks expect me to be talking about carbohydrate and carb loading because we have like this idea that glycogen and, and sugar uh, that you, is released from glycogen is the best fuel for athletes um, of of uh, certain uh, certain athletes, like the more high intensity uh, sports rather than like the basically the anaerobic type of athletic behavior uh, or athletic, um, uh, you know, the uh, performance versus the um, the cardio, right? So cardio, we think of as endurance and um, we think of things like uh, team sports or weightlifting as um, not cardio or anaerobic. But really, it, it's neither one nor the other. All sports are a blend of both. And as the intensity increases, it becomes relatively less cardio and less anaerobic and um and more dependent on fuels that um, do not need oxygen. So like uh, glucose or lactate or pyruvate um, and uh, glycerol. So um, it's not all glycogen and it doesn't all come from carbohydrate. And so we've been laboring, the sports nutrition world has kind of been laboring under this myth that sugar is the perfect fuel for athletes and glycogen is something that um, you have to, you know, constantly be dousing your, your bloodstream with sugar and carb in order to keep your glycogen levels up, or you're not going to be able to perform. And that is just not true. The biochemistry doesn't support that. And the, um, the, the, the testing and the research doesn't, doesn't truly support that because there's so little research that's actually done using, um, the right kinds of fats in the diet. So, and there's just so much wrong with most of sports nutrition research that confounds it and takes the conclusions um, and you have to take the conclusions, not just with a grain of thought of salt, but you have to basically throw them in the garbage because there's, they're just not 
um, correct. And anybody who really understands the science of fat burning and how your body releases uh, fat from storage um, is is going to have a completely different take on sports nutrition science and what's the optimal fuel for athletes than somebody who um, has not really looked outside the the box of what you get what you get taught in your training. Just like I, as a physician, didn't learn really how to nourish my patients or not to mention myself or my patients. I didn't learn really anything about nutrition. What I learned was actually wrong. The same applies to sports nutrition science. And there's just thousands and hundreds of thousands of research articles that are are just done so badly uh, without consideration for hormones, without consideration for the kind of fat that um, it's really just a almost a complete garbage science at this point. It's not a whole lot better than, you know, something that is considered, you know, very soft science like uh, tea leaf reading. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really just not, not done properly. And um, so the part of the one example is that um, if you f- feed an athlete sh- anything with carbohydrate or sugar before you test that athlete's performance, um, you're, you've just bumped up that athlete's insulin level and insulin blocks your body's access to stored body fat. So it, it, it doesn't hundred percent block it. You can override that blockage with enough adrenaline, with caffeine, with other stimulants, um, and performance enhancing you know, drugs, but you are not in a state where you're going to be accessing your body's, um, fat properly. And so that when they do studies to see like, okay, what fuel is an athlete actually utilizing or how do they perform? It's under this, this, um, competition now between insulin or this blockage of the access to body fat because of the presence of insulin. And so, you know, it's, it's, that's just one example that insulin blocks the body's access to uh, to b- stored body fat. And so then you're forcing the athlete to burn the sugar that the athlete just consumed first. And it gives a false impression that sugar is the per- preferred fuel for athletes just because that sugar is getting burned f- in preference. Appear- at that point in time, it appears to be in preference to body fat. And so dietitians have come away with the conclusion that fat is just a slower fuel, that it's released too slowly to be utilized properly for these high intensity, you know, extreme, um, extremely high level functioning athletes. You don't want to risk it having them rely on their own body fat, but it's just all under the, the guise and the confusion, the misperception, because those doing these, um, those that design these studies have not appreciated the simple fact that insulin will block the body's ability to release stored body fat. And so it's so basic and seems so like, um, uh, like, of course they would know that, but they, they don't. And so most of the studies don't take that into consideration. And that's just one example of how we've been misled to think that sugar is a perfect fuel for athletes. And, um, a lot of this misleading comes is, you know, in my mind, possibly partially willful ignorance because a lot of the research of course has to be uh, supported by, um, sports science foundations like Gatorade, which sells sugar water basically, and, Mm. you know, Coke and Pepsi. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel, um, our listeners are very much 
aware of the myths and misconceptions that have infiltrated the sports nutrition world. But what about when we look at um, you say that, you know, fats are a slow-burning fuel, if, if there wasn't the pre-consumption of carbohydrates, what's the time difference in accessing glucose over being able to burn fat? So those questions haven't been answered because we are not doing any research on um, athletes that are fat adapted. Yeah. Uh, oh, I guess I shouldn't say we're not doing any, but there's so little. It's like less than 1% of all the research that's done. And um, and it would be – you wouldn't really be able to evaluate that in a whole body. Mm-hmm. You know, you could do it at, as an isolated muscle tissue, but then that's not – that's not giving you the answer you need because it's going to have to come from the liver, right? So you need the liver, the liver produces ketones. So, um, there, you, you can't really answer that question, but the, the close, you can cut, you can come fairly close because there is some research showing that mitochondria themselves prefer ketones to sugar. Mm. And so, uh, at least on that, um, subcellular level, ketones are obviously preferred. And so ketones are only produced by fat adapted athletes and they're only produced in the quantity that that fat adapted athlete needs if they train in the fasted state. So, um, you, you, you train for how you perform, right? So if you want to make your body dependent on glucose and then you should, have a lot of glucose, sugar, before you train. And then you're going to, you know, get your body all revved up to be being better at dealing with the glucose as opposed to getting that ketones, which appear to be the mitochondria's prefer, preferred fuel. The ketones are, there's like a, a number of fuels. It's not just ketones or glucose. There's um, fatty acids. There's um, different lengths of each fatty acid. Like for example, we've uh, all heard about bulletproof coffee, which is uh, you have to put the medium chain fatty acids, uh, medium chain triglycerides in in your bulletproof coffee because those um, medium chain fats actually get shuttled into the mitochondria faster. And then there's things like lactate and like I mentioned earlier, glycerol and pyruvate. Um, And there's other fuels that the mitochondria can burn. But, uh, you know, so there's not just these two choices, but it seems like of all of them, ketones are the winner. And, um, and one of the um, slowest to get into the mitochondria is actually long-chain saturated fatty acids. So we have to be this fat-adapted athlete that has trained in the fasted state in order to be able to get the benefit of, of burning fat. You can't just eat a bunch of fat and then um, expect to be able to burn those long chain fatty acids very efficiently because that doesn't happen either. So there's, there's a lot of very basic, very high biochemistry science that, um, I've been applying to sports science that you won't find it in the sports science world. You can only find these answers in the lipid science world. And some of the research isn't even done in English. So it's, (laughs) Uh it's extremely, um, difficult to 
really be able to answer these questions. But there are a lot of questions that have been answered. Um, it's just that um, right now there's not um, a lot of people talking about this at the athlete level. They're just kind of like doing the very, very basic science on how do mitochondria live and survive and what kills them. And for example, um, soy oil actually kills mitochondria, right? So soy oil and corn oil with these highly polyunsaturated fatty acids. There's a study that I've um, got cited on my website somewhere about um, how it actually kills mitochondria and in a high enough concentration. So if your diet is composed of these fats, um, it's not going to be good (laughs) for your mitochondria. Um, because it they can't function properly when um, when that is their primary fuel. Yeah, for sure. And just wanted to clarify around, you know, I like the statement that you make around you train for how you perform. And obviously we know that, um, say, in the FASTA study with Volick and Finney that was released um, last year, the – exercise prescribed was all submaximal. So that's obviously aerobic in nature. So it would make sense that we would want to be fat adapted to be able to choose fat for fuel. But what if we're dealing with a purely glycolytic athlete? Would you still prescribe faster training or would you recommend the consumption of carbohydrates prior? I don't think, I don't believe that there is a pure glycolytic athlete because there's the phosphagen system and then there's so many other fuels other than those derived from glucose. Uh, there's, uh, like I say, there's different fatty acid chain lengths and then there's um, fuels that the, the mitochondria can uh, use uh, from the breakdown pro- uh, products of fatty acids. Um, they can actually, you can convert um, ketones into glucose. Mm. So, um, it's just, it's a lot more complicated. Uh, the body's a lot more adaptable and, and prepared for a lot more different extenuating circumstances. So, um, so I would say, I would have to argue that there is no such thing as a pure glycolytic athlete, uh, you know, p- primarily because there's the phosphagen system, right? So that is mm. actually used before, we use before we even get to, um, breaking down glycogen, it's like the first 10, 15 seconds of activity. Um, and then the other, uh, systems kick in and it very well may be that you can train that phosphagen system to last longer than 10 seconds and that you could just go directly to fat burn or ketone burning at at that point in time. And like I say, ketones are the preferred fuel. So if you are, if your liver is capable of producing ketones quickly enough on demand, um, then which it it will be if you train it, then you're going to do better than that uh, athlete who's stuck believing that they have to um, that they have to have glucose for the purpose of oxidation, right? I think the faster study, one of the things that it revealed was that uh, that glucose is used for stuff other than oxidation because one of the key things they found was that the fat-adapted athletes broke down as much glucose, they depleted their glycogen just the same as the um, non-fat-adapted athletes, but they didn't oxidize that glycogen. They, They presumably used it for uh, for full on complete metabolic flexibility, meaning there's, there's a lot of other, uh, pathways besides the oxidation energy production pathways that, um, that a muscle cell uses, uh, pyruvate for it's, it's really the, the three carbon, um, part of the glycogen that gets used for, um, a lot of stuff in the cell and particularly for energy, right? It's not, it's, it's, 
mitochondria does not um, accept glucose. It accepts a broken down half of uh, glucose broken in half in the form of a three carbon molecule. So, um, so the, but getting back to your question about like the pure glycolytic athlete, um, I just, uh, I just don't think that it's, it's healthy to think about the, the glucose as the primary fuel yeah. really for any athlete. Cool. No, I, I love that. And I think that's something that is probably the next step that we'll see coming through in the research. I'm not sure if you agree, but obviously, as you say, like we don't have a lot because of the way the science has been conducted and what sort of athletes, so like all sugar burners, who's funding the study, so on and so forth, whereas obviously things are changing in the recent years and faster has been a huge part of that. And I'm sure we'll see a lot more research that's being able to look at that sort of biochemical level in an athlete in the near future. Yeah, it's tough because um, the in a whole body, um, it's very difficult to tell, you know, really what the athlete is actually using. And there's a lot of confounding things. Like, for example, um, uh, your, your listeners probably are familiar with like the, the way that the the fat burning versus sugar burning is determined. It's called a metabolic cart, they right? Are. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the um, preeminent lipid scientists um, in the world has produced research showing that because these oils, like soy oils, um, uncouple the mitochondria, you actually get a falsely um, lowered respiratory exchange ratio, making it look like you're burning more fat than mm. you truly are mm. because it's, it's utilizing oxygen without producing CO2. That's what an uncoupled mitochondria does. It, it, um, it doesn't produce ATP energy. And it's it, the last step of that producing ATP energy is accepting, um, is, is, is going to produce, um, a CO2. And so when you have an uncoupled mitochondria, you are not producing CO2, but you are consuming oxygen and that falsely lowers the respiratory exchange ratio, making it look like somebody's burning fat. So, um, there's really no way around that. And, uh, you know, in terms of how, so how then do you really measure what they're burning? Um, you know, you can use lactate in the blood as a proxy, but that's more what's being released. So, so it's just, it's all, um, I'm sorry, glycerol in the blood, not lactate, but, um, so there's, there's a lot of missing, um, pieces in terms of wanting to be able to prove this, but I, I think that, um, I think that, you know, if we just start having athletes take this seriously and more and more trying it, I mean, I don't know any athlete that has done it properly and said, I feel worse. Yeah. And that's a really good point because it has to be done properly, obviously. And the, the athletes in faster are a good example. They were, they are athletes that have been fat adapted for more than two years and they've obviously been able to really fine tune their own personalized nutrition. And they're not the people that are consuming refined carbohydrates or polyunsaturated fats. So their metabolic cut results are going to be reflective of what their metabolism is doing. 
And they self-selected. So this mm. was one of the things that is drawn criticism is that it wasn't a randomized controlled trial. It was people who self-selected to do this, you know, and the argument is, well, that it's because they felt better. But I think that, you know, that, that being aside, uh, let's put that argument aside for a while. And let's not say this is just a unique subset of human beings who happen to feel better fueling um, off their body fat, which is, uh, you know, like not an absurd thing to suggest at all. If you think about it for maybe one second, but, um, they, they're not, I don't believe that they are just a, you know, a rare subset of the human athlete population. Um, so putting that argument completely aside and taking a look at what it takes to become fat adopted, um, in this country in America, most human beings are consuming a horrible diet that's going to block your fat burn in at least six different ways that I'm going to be talking about actually in my next book. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll have the six habits that block your fat burn, but, um, the, um, you, it takes a while. My point I'm getting to is that two years, it takes a while to become truly fat adapted to heal from the damage that we've been doing to our metabolisms to remake our metabolisms the way nature intended for us to be as fat burners. Um, I have a good friend who is a fat adapted, uh, ultra athlete, and he actually went to the trouble of getting VO two max testing, um, over the course of his fat adaptation, which has been, I think three to five years now, I can't remember which one. So he did it early on, you know, maybe in the first month or two, just to see, you know, how he was, how he was fueling himself. And he had no idea that there were benefits to come, but, um, he, uh, the first time he did it was after being a low carber for maybe less than six months, certainly, I would say, certainly less than a year. And um, his um, heart rate at which he f- flipped over, you know, crossed over the aerobic threshold into being um, less than 50% fat burning at that point in time was somewhere around 120 or something, mm-hmm. which is what your average, you know, well-trained cardio um, athlete, that's about, that's pretty good. By 45% um, VO2 usually. Yeah. Um, well, so his, I go by heart rate. I, um, so because, um, that's easier number for me to remember. Cause you know, I have a heart rate. I don't happen to know what my VO two is at this moment and it doesn't, you know, so, um, so, so heart rate. So his heart rate was, um, in the one, one fifteen to one twenty the first time, the second time he did it was, which was several years afterwards, his heart rate where he, um, you know, just before he hit his, his, uh, lactate threshold and exhaustion was 168. So he was almost like completely, at his VO2 max, where he was still burning at least half fat, right? So you get so much more adaptation um, after not just a month. You can't just measure after a month. So you you really can't judge after a month either. And this is where we get to the point of the self-selected athlete. These folks were committed to doing it. And regardless of whether or not they could like see a performance dis- difference in the first day or the first month or whatever, they felt other benefits elsewhere in their life, no, no no doubt, you know, you get brain performance, <laughs> concentration benefits, and a lot of reduction in inflammation and faster recovery. But the the performance um, benefits come, I feel like much, much later, just because there's so much recovery, you don't get a performance um, drain, I don't believe. And I think part of the reason um, 
part of the reason that we we see this um, question of the the top end like uh, reduction in performance is because of what I was talking about, about the uncoupling of the mitochondria. So um, we may not be measuring properly, but um, but I, I haven't answered that question yet. So it might be a it might be a false impression. But mm. so, you know, we certainly have people who are able to perform um, uh, longer and with with because of the less production of uh, free radicals when you're burning ketones, they're able to recover faster. So you can certainly do, you know, your back to back becomes a closer time that you can, um, you know, you have less recovery time. You can do more events. You can perform better it, if you're forced, like say in the, the NBA to do back to backs, you know, um, so you can, um, get those kind of performance benefits. But, um, the, the, the true fat adaptation takes not just one season, it takes several. So, um, you really have to be believe in it and you have to be committed to doing it and to doing it correctly, which isn't easy, certainly in this country, because it's just hard to get the right kinds of fats. The So many restaurants and so many um, uh, products are made with the wrong kinds of fats, those ones that will uncouple your mitochondria. Yeah, I completely appreciate that. Um, I think that the, obviously the awareness around real food is wonderful and we have a huge real food movement happening here in Australia, but it's important to remember the the actual reasons. And I think the explanation around the impact on the mitochondria is really important because polyunsaturated fats are everywhere. Like we don't have too much corn and soy oil in Australia, but we have a lot of still canola oil and sunflower oil. And we know the you know, the omega-6 nature of these fats are the um, inflammatory foods that we definitely wanted to be, want to be avoiding for performance, but obviously for long-term health as well. Right. Well, we don't want to be burning them for fuel, right? The omega-3 either, right? So we, we all know omega-3 is relatively anti-inflammatory and also an essential um, fatty acid, but it's not for fuel. It's a signaling molecule that the body uses and it uses it to build um, neuron structure uh, in the brain, uh, but it, it's it's not for fuel either. So so um, a lot of folks go way too heavily to after the omega-3s and they do like mass of, you know, supplementation with fish oil or cod liver oil, and then they have all these nuts that are high in omega-3. And and that's a problem too. And, um, you know, nowhere near the problem of the vegetable oils Mm. because uh, they're refined and actually contain toxins. But the body can only handle so much of this polyunsaturated fat in the diet. And um, because it's very volatile, it's very reactive with oxygen, and it's very unstable, and it degrades. And um, there's another researcher at UC Davis who talks about the polyunsaturated fatty acids in the body that have uh, built up over years of a standard American diet um, as as toxins that you can't get rid of. Um, it, like very much like we talk about the uh, PCBs as toxins that are very difficult to get rid of. And um, so again, this this just gets to the need for patience. If you've changed your diet and you're eating better and um, you are now cutting your carbs well, you know, part of the reason that some athletes actually do feel better on a high carb diet and aren't ready to burn fat is because they still have so much of this toxic polyunsaturated fat in their body that their mitochondria can't burn that they're actually better off 
burning sugar um, because there really isn't the the right kind of fat stored to, at the proper percentage in their own body tissue. So there are some really profound things that we've done with this experiment that we've been in in the past 50 years of having so much uh, refined vegetable oil in the human diet. We can't just turn it on a dime and and say okay well i'm going to be low carb keto and you know tomorrow and expect to have all the benefits that you hear about right you you do get some but just as if somebody had you know 200 pounds to lose you don't lose that in a day and if they were diabetic you can't exp- type 2 diabetes you can reverse it as long as your pancreas isn't too damaged but you can't do it in a day it takes time so the same with the performance gains you have to um, I'll be ready to make a commitment to it and not just for, uh, you know, if you do it in a 21 day trial, right, you're going to feel some somewhat better in some other aspects of your life, but maybe not the athletic performance for a while for longer. And so that's where, like when I work with athletes, I have to really work very carefully to make sure they are, they are understand that they may want to go all in. They may want to, you know, do, you know, get all the benefits of fat burning right away, but they may actually benefit from doing it more slowly because of the fact that their mitochondria are not going to be delivered the right fuel because their body fat is the wrong composition. And so there's just, uh, there's a lot, a lot that we've done to our bodies that, um, has to be addressed and understood and appreciated before we can, get the benefits of being fat adapted, not to mention show them in a study. So that's why the faster study is so important because it's one of the few that actually truly dealt with actually fat adapted athletes. Cause most of the studies are, uh, shorter by, you know, time by tenfold. And, and you're not going to see, I believe you're not going to see a lot of benefits in, in that time frame. Yes, it's an amazing piece of research and I look forward to seeing more. I just wanted to go back to your comments on omega-3s briefly because obviously they aren't fuel. We're not aiming to burn that. So um, just for the benefit of our listeners, what what should we be consuming to ensure we're burning the right types of fat and what foods do we find that in? So, um, it's a very long answer, um, because, you know, part of the answer actually would include, you could do a lot of carbohydrate in your diet if you ate just once a day, because you would be storing it as body fat and the body turns carbohydrate into that perfectly balanced, um, fuel. And it's a blend of saturated and monounsaturated fatty acids. That is the, the, uh, the ideal blend of fuel for the body. It appears that monounsaturated fatty acid is, um, very, very special and has, um, almost, uh, the same kind of benefits as, um, coconut oil as the medium chain triglyceride in a fat adapted, a fat adapted athlete with healthy mitochondria. And, um, this is all like totally brand new, um, brand new science basically, because this comes straight out of the people who study mitochondria, um, and lipid science, there, not the athlete world. So, um, this is my interpretation of the science that I've been reading. That's actually coming out of Russia, um, showing that, um, oleic acid is a is a preferred fuel for mitochondria, for not just mitochondria, but for what um, muscles do is they actually, the mitochondria actually fuse with peroxisomes and the Golgi and the, I'm sorry, not, not the Golgi, the endoplasmic reticulum in the cell to become a, um, 
giant like organelle that is all connected so that it's like all doing a whole bunch of stuff right in one spot and it doesn't have to diffuse across the cell. So, um, that, um, is some fascinating new way of looking how we fuel our body. And there's just, uh, the sports science world is so far from even understanding what a mitochondria is supposed to do or look like that. Um, it's absurd. That's why I say it's barely better than tea leaf reading. Mm -hmm. reading. So you're talking about olive oil, avocados, olives, yeah. nuts. Yes, correct. The, yeah. uh, the monounsaturated, uh -huh. mm -hmm. 16 chain. 16 yeah. carbon chain. The chain length matters too, because, um, it, the, the, the C sixes and seven, uh, I'm sorry, the C sevens and eights get into the mitochondria very quickly and are broken down very quickly. Um, and so if you've got like, uh, a, a, uh, 14 carbon, um, molecule, then you break that in half and it's a C seven. Um, but if you have a, a 12, you break it in half and it's a C six and that may not be as good as the C sevens and the eights. So, um, but they're just starting to scratch the surface on, on all that stuff, but the body will take care of it. So actually you were asking the question though. So what is the ideal type of the ideal type of, um, of, uh, fuel and, um, it, it is your body fat. As long as your diet is free of vegetable oil toxins and not overwhelmed with these, these omega, um, threes and omega sixes that come from grass, from animals that are not grass fed, um, from a diet that's maybe a little too high in, um, fatty, uh, like nuts and seeds. Um, but, uh, but it's really actually the biggest source of the problem is going to be from, um, animals that are not grass fed. And, um, and so, you know, you guys are so lucky in Australia, you have a lot more grass fed, but, uh, the pork that is grain fed, uh, that fat, that lard, you know, we talk about it as if it's a saturated fat, but this was recently analyzed by one of my favorite, uh, lipid scientists, um, <laughs> in, um, I forget if it was Canada or UC Davis, but, um, they, um, found that, um, the lard was, is actually similar composition to, um, soy oil because the pigs eat so much grain that they are no longer their body composition is altered. So when a lot of, uh, athletes going keto are eating too much bacon or they're eating bacon, right? If they're not getting it from, uh, from pigs that have been fed something other than corn and, uh, soy, then they may be getting just, a, an overload of the polyunsaturates and, and still not, you know, building the right kind of saturated fat to fuel athletic performance, ideally. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really a mess what we've done. To our <laughs> yeah, <bodies>. I totally <laughs> agree. And obviously, as you say, like we're just um, scratching the surface with the science that's coming through. But I, I still think that obviously the overarching aim is if we're fueling our body with real food, that we can obviously transform our body fat, which makes it the perfect fuel to burn. Right. So the question is, what is real food? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what we try to answer in the book, Deep Nutrition. So um, mm -hmm. that's where we really emphasize the grass fed. And I, I know I've actually drawn some criticism for sort of insisting on grass fed because it seems almost elitist, right? In, in this country, anyway, in America anyway, because um, it's expensive. And yeah, it is. But um, but there's a difference, right? Just like you are a fat adapted animal, your body composition is drastically different. Well, the same with the animals we eat. And so if they have been fed, you know, the cheap crap, then we're, it's better than eating the cheap crap directly, 
but we eat, we're still eating it indirectly. So, yeah. um, you know, it tastes pretty great and that's really nice. And you can use it once in a while because it's way better than the cheap crab, but you still have to be careful to, um, not have too much. And it seems as though pork fat is worse than, um, than cow fat, beef fat in terms of reflecting that grain, um, much more. So the, the cow rumen sort of protects the cow from mm. having too much polyunsaturate, but not so with the, the pork. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, again, a really fascinating point. Um, yeah, look, I think science has a long way to go, but we're certainly heading in the right direction. Um, and I think, you know, there is always the argument that rural food is expensive and that grass-fed costs money, but I think that disease and um, being unwell is certainly more expensive. So it's important to try and keep that perspective that what you eat is totally changing your health trajectory and, you know, also extending your longevity. Absolutely. So, yeah, so keep keep exporting your uh, your lamb. <laughs> <laughs> to you guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, we'll see what we can do. Kate, it's been a thrill to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. I'm sure we'll have you on again soon, but I will direct our listeners to your website, drkate.com, for more information. And obviously they can grab, um, I think you've got two books and another one on the way. So they're all yes. available on your website as well. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Yeah, thanks, Steph. It's uh, it's um, just so helpful to get the word out. And I really appreciate folks like you who do the, who do this. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and yourself. So thank you for sharing your knowledge once again. And we look forward to speaking again soon. Okay, thanks. Have a good uh, rest of your day. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.